Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. On today's episode, I talk with Cincinnati Mayor Aftab Pureball, the first Asian-American mayor in the city's history. We talk about the dynamics of mayoring during an NFL season, leading a blue city in an increasingly red state, and why he believes Cincinnati is poised to be the city of the future. The thing I love the most was the mayor's pitch for taking big policy swings to create opportunity and build a brighter future. Enjoy. Cincinnati Mayor Aftab Purval, welcome to An Honorable Profession. We are excited to be talking to you today. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. I thought a good way to start is the day we're recording this is the morning after the Bengals got their uh, first win of the season on Monday Night Football last night. And there's probably a couple dozen mayors in the country that can talk about what it's like to have a pro sports franchise in your city. And I'm just curious, what is it like? Can you see how it impacts the civic life or the, the mood of your city when your team's winning or losing? Yeah, Mayor Lucas of Kansas City and I always joke about this. You know, obviously we have a, a rivalry, not only on the field, but also Kansas City and, and Cincinnati are relatively similar sizes. Kansas City is a little bigger. So we compete off the field as well for economic development and infrastructure projects. But Mayor Lucas is fond of telling me, and it's really true, that his approval rating really matches that of the Kansas City Chiefs, how well they're doing. And, you know, I'm sure he, he means that as a joke, but it's, it's really true. Here in Cincinnati, we had a long-suffering franchise with the Bengals in my very first year. Not only did we win our first playoff game in 31 years, but we ultimately went to the Super Bowl. And when the teams are winning, not just the, not just the Bengals, but also we've got FC Cincinnati, the MLS, which is in the playoff hunt. The Reds, with a very, very young team, is doing well. When your professional franchises are doing well, the entire mood of the city is optimistic, energetic, and it's it's a really it's a really great kind of natural organic phenomena to try and harness that civic pride and that civic engagement into you know substantive issues that you care about. Because when when the community is more engaged and more prideful of their city, it makes it a lot easier to move the ball on progressive changes that are necessary to keep that momentum going. So it may sound, it may sound, I don't know, frivolous, but when the sports teams are doing well, it really does lift the mood of the entire city. That makes it hard when you're in your first year, you uh, went to the Super Bowl. That's a high standard to keep up. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard. I used to joke that before the the next season that the Bengals had only lost once during my administration. So yeah, that was, that was a useful talking point for about six months. (laughs) Got to take whatever you can find. That's right. So yeah, so tell me how are things in Cincinnati right now after a little more than a year? And what are you working on? What are you excited about? What do people need to know about your city? 
Cincinnati is the future. I'm, I'm so incredibly excited about all of the potential that we have. Just a few facts. Right now, we're at a two-decade low for violent crime. Our pedestrian safety is, is up and at historic levels. We're taking really big swings, primarily because of all of the infrastructure dollars, the IRA dollars, the ARP dollars, the CHIPS Act dollars that the Biden administration has flooded trillions of dollars into our communities, specifically into our cities. And Cincinnati is benefiting enormously from that. We just won the largest single federal grant in our country's history, $1.6 billion to redesign the Brent Spence Bridge, which connects Kentucky and Ohio. And 3% of our GDP goes over that bridge. So it's not just an important local project. It's a hugely important interstate commerce project, which is why the Brent Spence Bridge is the poster child for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The CHIPS Act paved the way for a $200 billion investment by Intel into central Ohio for the largest semiconductor plant in the country. And even though it's two hours north of Cincinnati, that kind of investment is going to have a huge impact on our local economy and supply chain, which is why we're partnering with the port to make a $10 million investment using ARP dollars for our strategy for advanced manufacturing, getting control of sites, getting them ready for investment. And we're expecting that manufacturing boom to continue to positively impact Ohio and specifically Cincinnati. We're also incredibly proud of the fact that we, we continue to get our fair share of various grants at the federal level. In the 50s and 60s, our public infrastructure and highways disproportionately negatively affected our black communities. Cincinnati is not unique in that. But the 75 and 71 highways destroyed disproportionately black neighborhoods like Evanston and the West End. And we've been really very successful in getting millions of dollars of federal money to reconnect those communities. And as we're thinking about rebuilding our infrastructure, having an eye towards equity and making sure that we're not just ensuring that rich people get richer, but that all 52 of our neighborhoods continue to, to see the success that we're seeing economically. On a broader picture, though, I'll say it's a, it's a tough time. It's an uncertain time in American cities. The impact of remote work on the density and vibrancy of downtowns, the continued negative impacts of climate change on cities, increasing gun violence, particularly amongst teens. It's a really uncertain time in many cities across the country, including Cincinnati, are at a crossroads. And I firmly believe that the cities that are risk tolerant, that are innovative, that take big swings right now in this uncertain moment will be the cities that really grow into the future. And Cincinnati is perfectly placed to be that future city, to be that future destination. We're incredibly affordable in the national context. And most importantly, we are very climate resilient in that, of course, we're all affected by climate change, but Cincinnati is not seeing the hurricanes and the droughts and the wildfires and the tornadoes and the earthquakes that other parts of the country are seeing. And on top of that, we have access to huge amounts of fresh water because of the Ohio River at our southern border. When you look at the national headlines about the groundwater crisis in the western part of the country, when you look at insurance companies leaving parts of the Gulf state communities or increasing insurance rates 10x, I'm convinced that those are tea leaves suggesting that in the next 25, 50 years, there will be a massive inward migration from the coast because of climate change and the cost of living. And for those climate migrants, I want them to choose Cincinnati. And we're making investments to ensure that we're creating dense, diverse neighborhoods that are walkable with good public transportation to account for that inevitable, as I see it, population growth in the future.
It's I've, I've been in reading about you. I see these big swings right on on increasing some density and walkable neighborhoods. These economic investments using leveraging federal dollars, racial equity efforts, universal basic income. How do you bring your the city as an institution along on these quote unquote big swings? Because they're people tend to be risk averse, and also your community as a whole. It's a great question. So before becoming mayor, I was in the private sector. I was an antitrust litigator, a federal prosecutor, and most recently, I was the global brand attorney for Olay Procter and Gamble skincare company which made me a beauty attorney, which is ridiculous. But what I learned in the private sector is that innovation requires failure, that innovation requires iteration, requires trying something and failing. And so often in the public sector, it's just the opposite. There's so much aversion to risk because you're dealing with public dollars, you're dealing with elected officials that only want to be successful. And so there's, there's a lot less leaning into that risk. What I've tried to cultivate here in Cincinnati, not just within our city government, but also cultivate a culture within our city, is one of taking chances. It's not always going to be successful, but you learn from those iterations. You improve based on what you learned, and then you try again. And that's exactly our model here. Look, not all of these big swings are going to be successful, but I would rather be at the plate trying the best that I can move our city in a a transformative way while I have this small time, hopefully eight years as mayor. And if we connect on just two or three of those, then we will have changed the face of Cincinnati for a generation. And with the trillions of dollars of federal money at your disposal, if you're not taking big swings now, then you never will. And if you're not evolving and changing, then your outcome, particularly for a city the size of Cincinnati, is you're not going to grow. And cities that are not growing like ours ultimately are dying. What are the big swings that you're most excited about? And then the second half of that question is the federal dollars and the Biden administration made some amazing investments. We are now on the brink of a a federal government shutdown. So continued investments, even maintaining basic services seems to be at risk. How do you calculate those big swings versus some of the headwinds that we may be seeing going into the future? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that there will continue to be headwinds, particularly for economic development. When you look at the macroeconomic factors in our in our communities, interest rates are high and Fed has indicated that they may go even higher. Insurance rates are going are going up, the cost of everything is going up. So just getting things out of the ground is really really difficult, which is why it's critically important for cities like us to be proactive rather than passive and responsive to economic development. We've done that. We've tried to get control over as many buildings in our downtown area as possible to change our strategy due to pandemic and remote work from downtown being purely an economic center to now turning it into more of a neighborhood, a place where people actually want to live and also work. And that means taking less than class A office space and providing the tax incentives necessary to turn it into high quality, accessible housing in our downtown area. But you also asked, what is the big swing that I'm probably most excited about? And I'm most excited about something that's probably going to be the hardest, and that is a comprehensive review and reform of our zoning code. We are, despite the fact that we're nationally very affordable, our local wages has not kept up with inflation, has not kept up with the cost of living. And so just like a lot of other cities, we are facing an affordable housing crisis. In order to address that crisis, of course, we need more gap financing to make, to make sure that deals can pencil and we can get more units out of the ground more quickly. 
But we also need to look at our zoning to make sure that we are designing a city that we want to live in. So much of the zoning code, not just in Cincinnati, but throughout the country, is based in the Jim Crow era. And Cincinnati, unfortunately, to this day is very segregated. We have concentrations, high concentrations of poverty. In some instances, is by design. I'll give you an example. 70% of our city prohibits multifamily units. 70%. Wow. So not only does that is that an artificial cap keeping the supply of housing down, which of course artificially increases property values, property taxes, and rents, but it also continues to segregate by class and income our city. So we're basically saying for 70% of the city, you cannot live there unless you can afford the most expensive kind of housing, which is single family housing. A lot of other major cities in the country, we're taking a look at that and we're prioritizing reducing those multifamily prohibitions, reducing the amount of parking requirements in our neighborhood business districts, continuing to invest in our bus rapid transit system to connect our public transport with our zoning code reforms to create more of a transit-oriented development strategy. You know, all cities are trying to create a 15-minute city, and we're not alone. We are trying to accomplish that by pairing massive zoning reform changes to our new public transportation infrastructure. But the reason why I'm so excited about it and the reason why it's so difficult is because NIMBYism is real, and oftentimes progressives are the worst when it comes to these issues. But it's time to call the question. We are either prioritizing affordable housing and making sure that people can continue to live and work in our city, or we're not. And I've put my flag in the ground and said, this is important for a whole host of issues, not just affordable housing, but also economic development in our neighborhood business districts. And this is the way we're moving forward. I'm hopeful that we can do enough community engagement to get people on our side. But like I said, it's definitely going to be challenging. Yeah, I think zoning fights are always the most difficult in policy. How do you plan to engage the community and bring oftentimes what is our base, your base to your cause? It, well, we have been, I, I took office in January of 2022. So I've been in office for almost two years and almost in that entire time, we've been doing community engagement, not just town halls, but also working groups where we bring community leaders in to, well, we have a, a roving community engagement meeting and we bring those folks into the meeting who are leaders in that neighborhood. And we, and we essentially do an exercise of city planning. What kind of neighborhood do you want to live in? Do you want multifamilies? Do you want single families? What kind of access to public transportation do you want? And there are trade-offs, right? You cannot have a dense small business areas and also have these draconian parking requirements because you're unintentionally creating surface parking lots, which destroys density, viability, and also walkability. So trying to educate the community while also being persuasive about what our ultimate policy goals are in a very deliberate and very patient timeline has been critical to our initial approach. Now, once we announce what our policy proposals are, we will then need to do even more community engagement on the back end to work with communities to make adjustments and go from there. I think what, what most neighborhoods in Cincinnati and maybe around the country want are bespoke zoning code regulations per neighborhood. And as you can imagine, from a city administration perspective, that is very difficult, if not impossible. So of course, there's going to be trade-offs. But if we continue to keep our eye on the bigger picture, which is greater racial equity, greater integration, deconcentrations of poverty, and more opportunities for equitable economic development, I'm hoping that that 
theme and those policy values and priorities will, will win the day. I'm going to take a quick break here to just let our listeners know that if you want to find another podcast you might enjoy, I encourage you to check out EdChat. It's a dynamic podcast by the Education Reform Now Advocacy Organization. Join educators, policy experts, and advocates as they examine the intersection of education and politics. Conversations cover how to lead for students in an impactful ways, given record drops in test scores, how to navigate politically treacherous environments, how to ensure equity in education, gain insights in the policies that impact our students while discovering effective strategies to drive meaningful change. EdChats, the podcast for educational policy trends impacting today's political landscape, is available anywhere podcasts are found. I think we'll all be watching, as we are your city and so many other cities, for what the right strategy is for for making these changes in order to make keep the vibrancy of our communities big or small. Can you talk about your journey to? public office, how you went from uh, being a beauty lawyer to a mayor, not your, I think in the, the 200 episodes we've had on this podcast, we have not had a beauty lawyer yet. So, uh, so give us, give us the sense of, of how you found yourself in this position. Not only have you not had a beauty lawyer, but I would uh, <laughs> imagine you have not had a Tibetan either, because I think I'm the only Tibetan elected official in the country. And that's where I'll start. My, my story yeah. really starts with my parents. I'm the son of a refugee. My mom was born in Tibet and forced to flee when the communists took over. So my grandmother and my mother and grandfather, excuse me, made their way through the Himalayas, through Nepal and into India, where she grew up as a refugee. She got an education against all odds, met my father, who's from Punjab, India. They got married. And yes, so I'm half Tibetan, half Punjabi Indian. I'm 6'3", but I'm I'm all Ohio, born and raised in Ohio. (laughs) They got married in India and immigrated in the 1980, of all places, to Beaver Creek, Ohio. I was born and raised there, went to public schools. You know, I, I was always passionate about politics and public service, but it was more of a hobby and an interest. I never really thought a brown dude named Aftab could find a community to elect me to anything, much less mayor. But I, you know, I, I continued through my legal career. Uh, I continued volunteering and being active in local politics. And it was really President Obama who inspired me to, to jump into the arena. Without question, he's our first black president and incredibly proud moment in our country's history, but I really view him as our first president with an ethnic name. And he inspired me to believe that if I worked hard and was genuinely interested in lifting up my community, that no matter what my name was or where I was from, that I could be elected. And he was right. I got my I got elected to my first office in 2016 to the Hamilton County Clerk of Courts, which is as bureaucratic and as local as it gets. And spent five years there, very proud of my time. And then ultimately got elected to mayor in 2021 and by getting elected, became the first, not just Asian American mayor of Cincinnati, but the first in the entire Midwest. And I'm really proud of that, considering that Cincinnati is only 3% AAPI. So what it, what it really communicates to me is, is really the, the beauty and power of this country, because in one generation, my family went from being refugees to now mayor of a major American city. And, and that story so far has only happened right here in Cincinnati and in this country. I noticed on the YouTube page you had a uh, you had a commercial that was uh, what's an aftab that was funny but also engaging, right? And so, can you talk a little bit about how you approached being coming from a minority group in your campaigns and and now as now as mayor? Yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's just be frankly. If you have an ethnic name, uh, if you have an accent, 
if you are a different religion or a different culture or look different than a majority of your electorates, it's harder, right? It's, it costs more money. It requires more creativity. It requires you to work harder. And that was certainly the case for me. In 2016, when I would tell Democrats that I wanted to run for the clerk of courts, they would tell me, you've got to change your name. You have to change it to Adam or to Al. And I know that that sounds racist and terrible now, but, it, but back then they were trying to be helpful. Because if you see AFTAB on a yard sign, it doesn't immediately occur to you that that's a human being running for office, right? Maybe it's an acronym or a prescription drug or an insurance company. And so instead of, instead of running away from my name, from my perceived political weakness, I really hung a lantern on it uh, and made it the strength of my campaign. In addition to that ad where you, where you talk, or it's more of a digital video where uh, we were kind of saying, what is an AFTAB? I also raised enough money to get on TV. And then my first ad, every time I said my name, a big yellow duck puppet would pop up next to me and repeat it in the Aflac voice. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, not dignified, but incredibly memorable, incredibly effective. Instead of running away from my name, I made it the, the primary point of my campaign. A little self-deprecating humor, but creating empathy with people who don't look like you is really, really hard. And oftentimes humor breaks down those barriers. And what I'm really proud of is now that that was successful and I've been successful as mayor. Now I have Democrats coming up to me and saying, Mayor, how am I going to get elected? My name is John Smith. How am I going to stand <laughs> out in the crowd? Right. And so what I'm really proud of is I've taken a perceived weakness and really made it the strength on the political side of my career. I love it. And I hope that provides inspiration to everybody out there uh, to seek office. But and not, I think humor is underrated as a campaign tool. Everyone wants to be very serious, but it, but, it, but it makes a difference in terms of, you know, making connections to your community. You're a blue city in an increasingly red state. For most of my life, Ohio is a swing state. And can you talk a little bit about how that impacts governing? And then what do you see for the future, especially with this defeat of the Amendment 1 in the recent election? Yeah, I mean, look, Trump won Ohio by more than he won Texas. We have to be honest about the numbers. But we also have to be honest that in that same time, the Democrats in Ohio have been very successful at electing statewide Supreme Court justices, which was incredibly important last cycle in our fight for redistricting. We've been incredibly successful reelecting Sherrod Brown time and time again, one of the most progressive uh, worker first senators in the entire country in a state that is trending red. And uh, very recently, we defeated a constitutional amendment which was a cynical attempt by statewide Republicans to prevent us from passing abortion rights this November. So there's no doubt that in the recent past, Ohio has been going in the wrong direction from a Democratic perspective. But very in the near future, in November, we have a chance to enshrine abortion rights in our Constitution. We have a chance to reelect Sherrod Brown. And we have a chance to talk to our constituents about the profoundly positive transformational impact of all of the federal legislation coming down, whether it's CHIPS, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, ARP, IRA, all of these federal dollars are having a massive impact on our economy here in Ohio. But I, what I would say is in the, the reality of being a blue city in a red state, it makes it very hard to attract talent. I'll, I'll just give you an economic perspective. Kroger is the, one of the largest grocers in the entire country. They're based in Cincinnati. GE Aerospace, one of the major aerospace companies in the country based in the Cincinnati area. Procter & Gamble, the largest consumer products company in the world based in, in, in Cincinnati. Children's Hospital, 
Uh, Cincinnati Children's is the number one children's hospital in the country based in Cincinnati. All of these massive employers are in a fight for talent, young, diverse talent to come here and stay here. And when you have a state legislature that's more interested in culture wars, trying to erase gay people, flooding our communities with guns, having some of the most draconian abortion laws in the country where a child who was raped had to cross state lines to go to Indiana in order to abort the child of a rapist. That's the current situation in Ohio. So it makes it very difficult to recruit talent to come to Cincinnati when you're under those kind of draconian state laws. And it makes it really hard to do anything about public safety when your state legislature is passing stand your ground, is passing concealed carry. So now you can conceal carry without a license, without training and putting guns in schools by arming teachers. There's no wonder that gun violence across the state is going up. At the same time, the state legislature is passing these preemption statutes, which means that they're prohibiting cities in their state from passing their own specifically tailored sensible gun reform to keep our community safe. So not only are they making it worse with more guns, they're preventing us from doing anything about it. That is incredibly frustrating, incredibly frustrating because children are dying in Cincinnati streets and the state legislature is preventing me from doing anything about it. And that makes it very, very difficult to, to govern in an effective way. What can you do with the combination of these state laws going in the wrong direction and then these preemption laws that, that limit your ability? What workarounds are you, are you looking at trying to, to mitigate the, what you're seeing in your streets? Well, certainly educating the voters about the importance of elections and voting. But more than that, we're suing them. We just sued them. Uh, we just sued, sued the state of Ohio and the legislature for these vague, unconstitutional and overreach uh, preemption statutes. And the good news is we just won um, at the at the trial level. We're confident that we'll also win at the first district appellate court and at the Supreme Court. It's going to be a jump ball. But we believe we're right on the law and the facts and we're prepared to litigate it to the to the very end. Wrapping up here, hopefully with some uh, good news is I would like to ask my mayors this question, which is I have 24 hours to spend in Cincinnati or, or a weekend. What should I do? Great question. There is there's a lot to do. Just this, I'll just give you just this week. We have the U.S. Women's National Team in town for for one of the the final games for this this golden generation. We also had Monday Night Football. We had FC Cincinnati trying to make a playoff game. The Kroger Wellness Fair brought uh, Venus Williams in town. The Peyton, uh, excuse me, the Manning Brothers in town. John Cena was leading workouts on our riverfront area. You know, we, it's been the summer of Messi and Taylor Swift. And we had both come through Cincinnati and play our FC Cincinnati Inter Miami and also Taylor Swift did a concert here. Look, we're a world-class city with world-class entertainment. But in addition to that, I can drop you in the middle of our downtown and you can walk to two of the top 100 restaurants in the country. You can walk to, as I mentioned, an NFL game, a Major League Baseball game, a MLS game. You can walk to a the first American building designed by the famed Iraqi architect Zaha Hadid, our contemporary arts center. You can go to our museum center, which is one of the best museums in the region. And I, as I mentioned, we have incredible employers here as well. So there's, look, we're, we're incredibly affordable. We have all of the big city resources you could want, but in a much more comfortable living space. And if you're not applying to the University of Cincinnati or investing your dollars in Cincinnati, 
you are crazy because you are missing out on a city that's on the rise. Sounds like you're pitching for people to stay for more than a weekend, but I, and I, I love it. Thank you for coming on this podcast today. Thank you for being a part of New Deal. We're excited because I think many of your policy initiatives are models for a lot of other cities that we think that they can scale. And so we can have a, you can have a local impact, but we can also have a national impact. And we're grateful to have you that's, in the network. That's really what I, that's really what I love about New Deal Democrats and what I love about being a mayor. First of all, it's not a partisan position. Uh, it's really about effective leadership, effective management. And second of all, a lot of the risks that we're taking, the innovations that we're taking, will only have an impact if we have either comprehensive action at the city level or federal action. I'll just give you a couple of examples. I know we're running late on time, but we just passed a, a pilot for universal basic income in Cincinnati. We just passed baby bonds. So every preschool student in Cincinnati for the next three years will get a savings account because the data shows that if children have access to savings accounts and retirement accounts, they're 60% more likely to go to college. We just spent $1.4 million wiping out medical debt for 30,000 residents of Cincinnati because we've seen that medical debt is a huge obstacle for wealth generation. But taken alone, those, those programs will only have a minimal impact. But if all cities are doing that, that will incentivize the federal government to take these issues more seriously and think more creatively about how we can disrupt poverty. I absolutely agree. And from your mouth to, to Washington's ears, hopefully they can pass a budget and then get get active and start solving these problems. Thank you for joining us today. Good luck to all your sports teams and good luck to you and your efforts. Thank you so much for having me. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.